Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, it is good to be back. This was actually last weekend, my first Sunday to not be at FC, not FC Cube, sure, Sweetwater Christian Church. That's what happens. You miss one week, you forget the name of your church. The first Sunday I've missed actually in 2019, so I have a bit of a codependency problem, but I am uh, back and, and happy to be back. I was asked to be looped into a call this week with a, a small church that's struggling and, and, and trying to turn the corner uh, and, and uh, a committee that, that, that they've got and kind of do some quick consult, quick little conversation and uh, one of the, the things is I was asking about their church, you know, demographics, you know, what kind of what kind of people do y'all have? What are you working with? And and they were about our size, actually, about 75 people. Um, and I asked, okay, like, what, what age ranges? And they said, we have three, we have three people under the age of, like, 16. And I was just, like, even more thankful for our church, even more thankful for our community, right? This is not necessarily something you can do intentionally, something you can manufacture or create. It's a gift that you receive. Um, we'll talk this morning as part of the sermon that, that will emphasize the point of one of the reasons I love having the kiddos join us for service. Um, you know, I grew up in a church where kids were not supposed to be seen or heard if they were in service. There was a room for that. Um, and uh, as parents, I know, it makes us anxious if, if our kids are maybe being distracting or being loud. But I've always wanted to reinforce, at least from my perspective up on the stage, I love it. Right? There's no better problem to have than that a child is being a child in worship service. Um, that they're there and they're participating and that they're alive and they're letting us know they're alive. It's not a distraction to me. That's, a, that's something that, that gives me joy and encouragement. Um, and so... Uh, I appreciate um, Big Church Sunday, appreciate all the kids helping out this morning. Uh, I want to thank Michelle for preaching last week. Uh, if you've not heard it, it's on the podcast. I really encourage you to listen to it. I thought it was astounding. Um, and I say that often, but, you know, sometimes uh, Zach will preach. And I'll be like, How'd you, how did you think I did? And I was like, well, you did it. Um, <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm always encouraging, but... Michelle's sermon blew me away, and it inspired me. We've got a few weeks until a baby dedication for Malachi McKeska on July 14th, uh, and we were, were looking at starting a series on hell soon, but I did not want to subject all the visitors we'll have for the baby dedication to the middle part of a series on hell, and so we had a few weeks to, to fill in until then. Um, and Michelle's sermon was so good that it inspired me to kind of keep playing with the text and keep exploring. Uh, and so that's what we're going to do today and for the next couple of weeks right here at the very beginning of Genesis. If you missed last Sunday, Michelle talked about Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, the seven-day story of creation. And she pointed out that it's not necessarily at odds with any kind of scientific theory, science um, belief. Um, it's not trying to tell you facts about science or the material origins of the universe, but it, it is doing a lot of work as poetry and art and theology. Um, it's, it's showing God as a God who brings 
order out of chaos. It's showing God as a God who um, takes what is formless and void and through his spirit separates and divides and orders and then fills and then rests. And, and, and not rests as in take a nap or exit stage left, but rest as in rule. The Genesis story, the seven-day story, is a temple story. And, and, and she did a great job of explaining how understanding what ancient people thought and the words and phrases they use help us read the Bible more insightfully and faithfully. And, and seven is temple language, and this is what the gods did when the temple was constructed, is they went to rest in the temple. They went to go and start their rule. This morning, I want to explore a little bit more one section of Genesis 1, um, and I want to look at a a part of the sixth day of creation with you, okay? So if you have a Bible, open up with me to Genesis chapter 1. It should still be in the same place as it was yesterday or or last week. Genesis 1, we're going to be looking at the sixth day. This is the day that human beings are introduced. And the question I want to explore this morning is, what does it mean to be a human being? And what are the implications of that for you and I? And so to do that, we'll see the the day of creation when humans are put onto the scene of God's temple. We're going to pick up in verse 26. Humans don't get all of day six. So there's some things happening before this, but we'll, we'll get the end of it. Verse 26 Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If you notice repetition, you're noticing something that's important. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You will have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. One of the patterns in the poetry we find in Genesis 1 is God's self-assessment of the work that he's done. And so in the Hebrew, you hear very repeatedly, tov, tov, tov. Say that with me, tov. This is the Hebrew word for good. God steps back after these days, and he looks at it, what's been accomplished, and he, he gives himself a thumbs up. He's pretty impressed with himself, which I've got to imagine he's got a pretty high bar for his own work. It's a beautiful, complex, amazing, fascinating world that he's creating and, and setting up and, and ordering and, and getting ready to rule and reign over. And then there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a change, though, in this pattern. It goes get tov, and it goes tov, and it goes tov. And then after human beings are introduced, and we just read it, it changes. It's no longer tov, it's tov mayod. Very good very good. 
in one sense, God creates everything for himself to be his temple, to show off his glory. There is another sense in which it looks like the world's been being ordered in order to prepare it for the human beings and the role that they're going to have in creation. There's a sense that the creation of humanity and, and their introduction into this world God is putting together is one of the culminating acts. Is, is one of the things that makes God go from good to really good. And good doesn't mean perfect. It doesn't mean without any flaws that we can imagine or experience today. Good has more of a context of beautiful or well-ordered, prepared, um, structured right. Um, we think of good and we think the word perfect, but if you want to use the word perfect, I would say it's more like a, how a baby is perfect. You get a, a little infant, right, in, in the hospital ward, and you say, this, this, this child is perfect. I, I said that when I was holding my little brother when I was 13 years old, and, and very obviously he was not perfect. He looked a little alien-like, couldn't, couldn't provide for himself, couldn't take care of himself, contributed nothing to rent. But what, what I meant and what was clearly understood was he had potential. Everything that needed to be there was there. And, and life could grow and develop and, and thrive. The first time in my life that I can remember being confronted with the question of what does it mean to be a human being um, was a, a summer years ago that I made a friend with pretty severe autism. I was working at a camp for children of special needs and and for a week, I got paired one-on-one -on -one to take care of a, a young boy named Spencer who had autism. He was low-functioning, which means he needed help doing most daily things, getting dressed, taking baths, eating, going to the bathroom, um, that kind of stuff. And he was nonverbal, which means he, he, he didn't use really any language. He could maybe squeak out a yes or a no if, if you really go to him. And I was terrified of this child before meeting and upon meeting him, because this is the like, very opposite of who I think that I am. I'm a very verbal person. <laughs> I talk a lot. I managed to make a career out of it. And I've always prided myself. I've always been taught from a young age on being able to take care of myself, being able to provide for myself, not depend on others, and in fact, do so in a way that I can help provide for other people. And spending that time with him really made me question, is, is that what makes me me? Is that what makes me human? Is, is he deficient in those ways? Is he less human? And then the gift I received from that friendship, um, the way in which he gave so much to me in my life, the way in which he acted as a conduit for God's presence, the way that, that he taught me lessons about what it means to be a human and a thriving human. Maybe you start to rethink all of these questions and assumptions or things that I hadn't even started to consider. What is a human being? Well, biblically, the definition we get here is, is a human being is a creature that bears God's image. It's the image of God that makes a human being a human being. Now, this is kind of just punting the question, though. Okay, The next question is, what does it mean to be in the image of God? If the human being is in the image of God, then, then what does that mean? Um, and, and there's a couple, couple points that I, I want to uh, 
point you toward a couple observations. Um, the first we've, we've kind of mentioned, um, being in the image of God is, is that which separates us from the rest of creation. Um, it's uh, some sort of special designation given to us. And it seems pretty clearly connected to a role or a function or a job or a task or a vacation we've been given in the world. I mean, immediately after God, um, you know, deliberates upon himself, makes humankind. When we see that word man there, you might have a note in your Bible telling you to look at the footnote. It's not talking about males. It's talking about humanity. We want you to read humanity there. Um, immediately after that, he says, let them have dominion over all the other things that I've made. And then he repeats a few times, they're the image bearers, they're the image bearers. And he does this again. He says, they need to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue all that I've made and have dominion over it. This seems to have something to do with the role that we have to play in God's very special temple that he has created. Now, when we read a text like Genesis 1, we are in what we call a low-context communication situation which means we don't share a lot with the author, the audience, or the culture. We don't understand the phrases. They're not meant to be read in English. We, we have a lot of work to do to really make sense of it. And the good news for us is because of discoveries in the last couple hundred years, we have a lot of things we now know about the ancient world that help us make a ton of sense about all kinds of things in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And this is true when it comes to the image of God. What we, what we know is that in the Mesopotamian area, in almost all the cultures the Israelites would have had contact with in, in the ancient Near East, this was a very commonly used phrase. This had a lot of mileage on it. This is not something the Israelites invented. This is something that they used as part of a cultural assumption of we kind of know what this means. Now, they made some changes to it, some radical changes to it. But by looking at how the, the phrase image of God plays in these other contexts, it can help us shed light on an insightful understanding of the scriptures here. So, so two ways in the ancient world that, that, that this phrase image of God was used. The first is that often statues would be made an idol of a god, and it would serve as the physical representation of that god. And so if it is a god of power and war, right, it'll be muscular, it'll, it'll give off that sense, it'll manifest those attributes or characteristics. Um, if it's a god of more sensuality, right, it'll give off that kind of romantic, um, attractive vibe. Um, and the belief was that the god, in a sense, dwelled in these statues, these images of themselves, and they would be placed in the temple in the place of worship. And so what would happen is you'd have sculptors, and, and they would work on these statues, and it was believed that they were really just the hand pieces of the god that they were, they were building this, this image of. They were, they were not really having too much to do with it. God was doing something through them. And there was a ritual that had to be done when you had finished making the sculpture, the statue, before it became more than just a statue, before it became an image of God that God could dwell in and be put in a temple. And interestingly enough, it usually involved seven days, a seven-day ritual. Michelle led us into the, the clue that in the ancient world, seven is a, is a temple number. It's a number about sacred space. It's a number about God's presence. And most of these statues, these images of God that you'd find, 
are, are gods with their mouth open. And the reason for this is because one of the final things you do for these rituals is what they call a mouthwashing. They would, they would kind of clean out and prepare and, and anoint this, this open mouth of the statue. And that's what really finally clicked it and let the God breathe his life into this statue and turn it into an image. And that image was usually placed in a temple, and it was usually surrounded by running water and some plants, river and garden symbols, because in the ancient world, rivers and gardens mean sacred presence, God's dwelling there. Now, we'll look at Genesis 2 next week, but a sneak peek of Genesis 2 shows this is almost the script that God is running off of with humans. God creates the human beings, but then there's a separate act in which he breathes his spirit into them, and now they're, they're alive in a way they weren't alive before. And these, these human beings are placed in a garden with the river of life, kind of a locus of God's presence in his overall temple. So one of the things this could mean is an uh, image of God is meant to reflect the character and attributes of God. It's meant to facilitate worship and understanding of, of the God. The other way that it's used is in a royal sense. So a king or a pharaoh um, was believed to be God's kind of hand-picked um, per- person to rule the world, to extend um, that God's desire over the world. And they were often considered um, to be a, a physical representation of God, an image of God, if you will. Um, and this is actually why in the ancient world they're, they're treated with so much respect and dignity. It was not just because you were scared of, you know, being punished for not. It was because you really felt like you were in the presence in some sense of the, the God you worshipped. You, you got to the ground and you put your, your face on the ground and, and you kneeled. There's this real sense of dignity and worth and sacredness around it. And so the king as an image of the God, is a way for God, that God in particular, to keep his rule being extended in his kingdom. And then sometimes these kings would make statues of themselves, and they'd place them on the border or in other surrounding areas where they had conquered, and it would serve as a reminder that they were the chosen ones, that they were the people who were ruling. So the statues themselves of the kings end up functioning as a way of extending and reminding that rule. Again, in Genesis 1, this seems to be a similar script we're functioning on. God creates images of himself, and what's their task? To rule. To, to take care of that which God has just, just created. Now, the words we have here in English have dominion, Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea. We've got to be careful with. In in the Hebrew, these are not exploitative words. This is not a do what you want with it. These are more nuanced, caretaking, priestly, and in a sense, babysitting, stewardship roles, verbs. I'm a crazy dog person. I don't have kids yet, so we project all of that onto our dogs. When I leave town, there's about a 45-page manual that I give the person who's, who's, watching, who's watching my puppy. And if I came back from a trip and my dog had not been fed, 
or had an injury of some sort or, or was, was hit out of some frustration or sick or some other worse thing perhaps had happened, you would miss me for a few weeks. I'd probably have some jail time in my future. I would be very upset, very, very upset. And if that person tried to explain it to me by saying, you said I was in charge, I'd say you completely misunderstood what I meant. You were in charge, which is why you could negatively impact it. I did you want you to take control over the situation, but in a way that extended what I desired, in a way that was loving and caring and kind. To have dominion over the fish of the sea is not to put an orca in a tank and teach them cute tricks. It's to care for them. It's to, it's to respect them. To have creation and have dominion over it, be told to subdue it, is not to be told that we've been given something expendable that we can do whatever we want with. To be an image bearer automatically brings up questions, very deep questions, very, very hard questions of responsibility. And, and human beings throughout history have not been good at this task of dominion, of taking care of what God, God has created. I mean, in, in the history of the world, as our best guess go, we've been the worst thing that's happened to the world in terms of life and biodiversity. We, we extinguish species. We choose the convenient route for us. What's, what's cheap? What's pleasurable? What's quick and easy? Instead of wondering what's the right thing to do, even if it involves some sacrifice. This is not a, a liberal issue. It's not a bleeding heart left plea. It's not a green thing. This is a biblical thing. I read a text like this, and I get, I get really deeply grieved at, at how human beings take responsibility over the animals in this creation, over creation itself. Reports have, have come out, you know, it's what's convenient. We produce things that are convenient, fast, and cheap. We throw them away in ways that are convenient, fast, and cheap for us. And, and, and they found that these, these microorganisms at the very bottom of the, some of the deepest parts of the ocean, they were filled with plastic in a way that you might not have even thought as a scientist was possible for it to filter down and, and be, be ingested in that manner. Most of you know I have a weird obsession with orca whales and dolphins. I love that kind of marine mammal life. And there's some, some scientists who don't think the orcas are going to survive. They're on the way down, and they don't think the effects are reversible. They've also got these chemicals, this plastic, giving them diseases they've never had before. They have no antibodies for. We can't create a new ocean, right, to put them into and, and let them kind of rehabilitate themselves and, and grow as a species. And it grieves me because I, I don't want to be in a conversation one day in front of God giving an account for my life and, and be in that dog situation. 
where God says, what, what were you doing? I gave you so many awesome things, and you, you just trashed them for your own quick pleasure? And we go, well, no, I said dominion. and said we were in charge. He goes, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant at all. I think both of these things from the ancient world are in play when the Bible calls human beings the image bearers. I think we have a role to play in creation. I think we have a role to play in manifesting the attributes and character of God and showing the world what God is like, inviting them into worship. And this is one of the most exalted definitions you could give to human beings. There's perhaps nothing else that I can think of that gives human beings more dignity and more honor and more respect than the living God to say, these are my images. And notice a few things. All of humanity are his images. Not just the Pharaoh, the strong, the powerful, all of them. The blind, the deaf, the crippled, the rich, the poor, the smart, the dumb. One of the reasons in the Ten Commandments God says don't make images for yourselves is because he's got images already. And as a way of manifesting the character of God, they're living images. They're not these dead statues. The Israelites keep implying throughout their scriptures that these other gods are really dead gods if you think about it. Their images are sculptures. They don't move. They don't do anything. And one of the, one of the favorite designations for God in the Old Testament is the God of the living or the living God. And his images reflect that aspect of, of his activity, his engagement, his passion. And that's why a kid making noise is doing nothing other than affirming the fact that they have the image of God on them. They've been given life and enthusiasm and creativity. And we, we haven't been able to kill all of that with certain rules and expectations and norms yet. Notice that male and female are called image bearers. This, again, would have been really shocking to ancient people. Still to this day, it's not understood by many people. Both genders, men and women, bear God's image. There's no higher calling that you can give a person or a group of people. This morning, I want you to internalize this message to yourself. I am the bearer of God's image. And then I want you to to externalize the same truth. Every human being that exists bears God's image. We have a tendency to depersonalize other people, to categorize them, to label them, to put them into a box, to say they are, you know, misguided or evil. And we do this as a way of allowing ourselves to treat them in manners that aren't worthy of of treating something that is the image of, of God. We do this to prisoners. 
So there's a gentleman who just got out of jail for a year, had to spend a year of his life in prison for a crime that I would not be convicted of if I was caught in a similar manner. Because our skin colors are different and our resources are different. He, unfortunately, was forced to give a year up of his life. What people often don't understand about prisoners is that they're still people. They're still human beings. They still bear the image of God. People who do prison ministry, this is usually like the first big realization that occurs to them. Like, they're alive still. We put them out of sight, right? They just become a statistic. We talk about the possibility of, of executing them as if we're, we're talking about just numbers on a piece of paper. But, but if you were to go and observe, what you realize is these people are thinking and feeling. These people are growing. These people are building church communities. They're evangelizing. These are real human beings who reserve, deserve real respect, real dignity, real honor. Now, another part of what it means to be the image of God, and, and this, I think, gets overlooked a whole lot, is to, to really focus in on what kind of God it is that we believe in as Christians. What is God's character and nature? That's what we're manifesting to the world. Well, our God is a God primarily of love, which involves relationships, interpersonal relationships. And in fact, through millennia of revelation, Christians have come to say that God is triune, which means there's one God unified in being, but who exists as three persons, tripersonal. And we do ourselves a disservice, I think, on the stage when we say the Trinity is a hard concept to grasp. It's really not that hard. I just gave you the sentence. One God existing as three persons. I spent four years to get an undergrad, two more years to get a master's, and now you have that, okay? Now, yeah, there are a lot of implications to this that maybe are more difficult to understand, take some more time. But if, if you think of the Trinity, and you think, man, this is mysterious and complex, and I really don't have a real grasp on the inner working and truth of this, guess what? That means you get it. No one has that kind of insight on it. It is a mystery. It is complex. We should acknowledge this, but then still not just ignore it and act like the fact that God is triune doesn't affect other things. If we're made in the image of God and God is triune, what does it mean to be made in the image of a triune God? Because what Christians believe about God is he is inherently in his own being, his own existence, a God of relationship, a God of community, a God who finds his unity in life in an interpersonal mingling. Theologians will say that the persons of the Trinity, they're not distinct and separate from each other. They're so related to one another that they're mutually interdependent. Another way of saying this is that they help constitute the very existence and identity of the other. That, that if you were to get rid of one, the whole thing falls apart. And we can understand this through the titles we give the first two persons of the Trinity, Father and Son. If the Father has no Son, He's no longer the Father. If the Son has no Father, He's no longer the Son. 
You take Jesus out of the equation and God collapses. Or at least is fundamentally changed. I think to be made in the image of God is to be made as people who are to find our life, find our ability to thrive in community, in relationship, in interdependent personal relationships. Another way to say this is no individual bears the image of God. No individual can bear the image of God. It's a collective term. It's something that's truer and more beautiful and thrives better among a community of people. And we miss out the diversities here in the text from the very beginning. You got this plural pronoun that God's saying, let us make man in our image. Then when God makes humanity, there's diversity, male and female. There's diversity throughout creation, all kinds of different species reproducing after their own kind. It's built into the the text itself. Human beings are supposed to find life. They bear God's image. They represent who God is when we live in community, when we invest in community. Now, too often, we use our humanity as an excuse for our weaknesses and our failures. So when we're hurtful to somebody or when we don't take care of something the right way, we go, well, I'm, I'm just human. Biblically, this is totally incorrect. It's, you've reversed the entire thought process. Biblically, to be a human being is to be in God's image, which means you are accurately reflecting his characteristics and faithfully enforcing and extending his wise, loving rule. Biblically, if if you make mistakes like I do, the problem in those moments is not that you're just human, it's that you're not human enough. It's that while all of us have the image of God, and, and, and Scripture seems to suggest, I think strongly, it can't ever be erased, but it can be distorted. We can't walk away from it. The picture can get blurry. It can get blurrier in some people than in other people. This is why I think partisanship and tribalism is so inherently dangerous. When you create an in-group of people that are just like you and then are tempted to depersonalize and exclude and leave out those who are other, you have put a ceiling on your development as a human being. You have put a ceiling on your ability to manifest God's character and to play your faithful role in creation. We need one another. We need people different than ourselves. This is true both for humans in general and for the church. We need different perspectives and backgrounds and experiences and voices. We need different skills, gift sets. This allows us to have a really good foundation for disability ethics. Why is it that a Christian might suggest to a expecting woman that even if a test has found out the child might be born with profound Down syndrome, that that child still has value? Well, because 
They've got something to bring to the community. Now it's something different than we would expect and we were taught and, and we think is normal, but you spend time, make a friendship, and you realize they bring something that, that abled people don't bring. They give gifts, they minister, they are a conduit to God's presence in, in a way that otherwise wouldn't exist. To think about the image of God as relational, I could also ask you this. Try to imagine the perfect human being. Or like the perfect man and the perfect woman. If this was a video game, they're like 100% in all attributes, right? So I don't know, this guy, this man, might be 6'4", 11, 12% body fat, very, very smart, very, very strong, very, very caring, empathetic. And then usually what we do is we say we're this close or this far away from this made-up perfect human being, this kind of platonic form or ideal that, let me clue you in, does not exist. It does not exist. It wasn't supposed to exist. No one human being is supposed to have all the gifts and all the skills that a human being can possess. We need short humans and tall humans. We need smart humans and less smart humans. We need fast humans and slow humans. We need loud humans and quiet humans. To the extent we exclude any one of these, our potential to thrive and live and be faithful to our role in vacation and creation is hindered. A ceiling is put on it. This is, this is one of the reasons why a church, is a church should be growing. Because if no new person walks through that door, if, if they don't get accepted into our community, if, if we're not inviting people to join us, there's no way for our church to continue to minister, to continue to bear witness to who God is. Our ministry to ourselves will slowly and surely decline. Volunteers get tired. Our ability to minister to the community will slowly and surely decline. The type of people that we are is going to have a ceiling on it. It's unnecessary. This is why in our kids' ministry, if, if, if a, a child walked in with autism or Down syndrome, where many people's first reaction might be like, oh no, how are we going to handle this? My first, I'll tell you my first reaction, because I pray that this happens. It's going to be yes. Our ceiling just increased. Our kids can be more than they could have before. Our community can be more. We can bear more witness. We can receive more of God's presence when we surround ourselves in diversity and differences. Every human being bears God's image. It can't be erased. It can be distorted and marred. This is why bullying is such a theological, biblical, spiritual problem. We've got the kiddos in the room right now. I'm sure all of you have seen a kid getting bullied. Maybe someone's been mean to you before. It's hard for me to imagine a school population that has any significant number of Christian kids that can't put a stop to bullying. 
If I was a middle school youth pastor, do you know what my first agenda would be? It's to make sure every kid understood their job Monday through Friday was to protect those kids who had been singled out. Form a human circle around them if you have to. Completely rearrange the lunch seating. Putting that person at the center. And our understanding of the image of God is being relational. Human beings being interdependent helps us really get this. Because if it's true that we are all connected in a way much deeper than we'd like to, and that we're responsible for each other in a way that's more than maybe we're comfortable with, then it's also the case that when somebody harms another person, it's more than just one individual being harmed. So if someone commits a violent act to someone, you have a victim, someone who's received violence. The offender, though, has also been harmed by committing that violent act. The community around both of these people will be negatively affected by that violent act. This is, this is one of the things that we struggle so deeply with when our veterans return from war. This psychologists will say the, the, that human beings have this built-in high threshold to actually take the life of another human being. No matter our politics, no matter our ideas or opinions, it seems kind of built in that, like, one, we're in this together, and two, you have some sort of floor to your dignity that I have as well. And maybe there's, you know, psychopaths who the threshold's a little bit lower, but for most people, what the military has to do, because that's their job, is to, to go into war, is teach you how to get over that threshold. And this is something that harms you. When, when veterans come back, whether they've actually had to do it or not, they need help recovering from those psychological lines that were crossed. And sadly, too many of them don't get that help. It hurts not just the person being victimized, it harms the person perpetuating the, the harm. And then it affects the families of the person who, who perhaps may have, have died in the line of fire. It affects the families of the person who did that action, who comes back and can't deal with it, can't recover from it. Our actions, good and bad, have ripple effects. Because by our very nature, the way we were created, we are interdependent. Jesus comes, the true image of God, to restore God's image in us in the ways that's been marred and distorted. And he does this through the work of his Spirit. If you'll think with me just very quickly of the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit does in our lives, how it shapes our character, all of them are personal characteristics. All of them are community-building characteristics. Peace, love, hope, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. None of these are things you do by yourself in a closet. These are things that bring life to, that build up a community, that can create a community where diversity can exist, people can disagree, people can have differing gifts. Paul talks about the church as a model of this to the rest of the world. We're one body, but with many members. And we, we show more honor to the so-called weaker members 
and no one here is an eye and a hand and a foot. You, you're an eye, but you need those hands, and the hands need the feet. We, we function together. Wednesday night, I was helping out with the kids at Bible 101, and uh, naturally, we were playing basketball, and I think I had, I had picked a child up to throw him toward the rim so they could dunk it, and I got head-butted in the, in the mouth. And so this past week, my front two teeth have kind of hurt. I still feel like a little off. I haven't seen a dentist because there's a whole, a whole story there, right? But I've had a, some background anxiety the whole week because the, I can feel something kind of wrong with my teeth. And if you were around or remember, just a few years ago on Christmas Eve, I was in the ER because of a failed root canal that infected my jawbone. I still preached, but then immediately went to the ER, spent the night there. And it destroyed me because they were going to have to go in and have this kind of major surgery on my jaw. And it was right on top of a nerve and the doctor had to be very, very clear that I might not be able to speak or I might have some paralysis. But they've, they've got to fix the infection. And they can't guarantee that nerve won't be touched or how it will react if it is touched. And I was destroyed. I've never been more anxious and depressed in my life. Which is saying something. I'm a pretty anxious, depressed person. And I was trying to think through what was happening. I was trying to work through with the therapist. And, and really, it brought me back to the lessons I had learned with Spencer and people with disabilities. The reason it had touched a part of my soul that had never seemed to really get touched before is because my ability to speak, if I'm being honest, really makes up who I am in my mind how I contribute to the world. If you take that away, you've taken all of my careers away. You've taken everything that I pride myself on being able to do for other people. And I had to step back and go, hey, dummy, speaking is not what makes you a human. The ability to speak is not what makes you a human the ability to run is not what makes you a human. What makes you human is to live in a community where different people, diverse backgrounds, can come together and cultivate life in a real way together. So this morning, I want you to internalize this is a great honor and privilege that it is the truth that you are an image bearer of God. I want you to externalize it to everyone else that you see or meet or encounter. And then some ways forward, how can we, we work with the Spirit um, towards being more relational and bearing this image? Three things as we close very quickly. One, we, we can be more intentional about extending friendships and extending community, particularly to those who are different and diverse. Two, we can get better at conversations and talking to each other. There's an author who has a concept I really enjoy called um, genuine listening. And the idea here is that in a conversation with someone, you get to a point where you're not formulating what you'll say when they finish speaking. 
and where you're not focused on the different opinion you have, where you've created a space mentally, emotionally, where you're simply curious about their humanity, about their experiences, about why they have the opinions that they have. And this means the conversations are less debates and arguments, and usually a lot deeper and more transformative. We can tell stories, tell better stories, listen to stories better. I think we'll, we'll be better off as human beings. Then lastly, we can model this as the church. We can continue as a church to reject temptations for individualism, for self-dependence, for pushing away people who are different or other or might make us uncomfortable. We can bear witness to God's intention for humanity. We can pray not just around one another, but with one another. We can confess. So here's a truth about every human being that's ever come into my office to talk, is they harbor at some point in their life, and at some level in their consciousness, a belief that they're farther behind on the human scale than everybody else that they know. They've been hurt or broken or are missing out on some ability that, that they think everyone else has. I was talking to a young man like a year ago, and, and, and he said, I feel like I didn't get the toolkit about what it means to be a man that everyone else got. And I had to say, hey, bud, there's not a toolkit. <laughs> it might look to you because people like to project strength and confidence, like everyone else just naturally inherited this, this skill set, this cultural ability to, to conform. But they all have doubts, and they all have struggles. They all have to turn to resources and, and get help. If we were just more honest with each other, I think a lot of problems would be solved. Because the questions and doubts that you have, I guarantee you in a very small room with not a lot of people, there are people in this room with those same questions and doubts. And the struggles that you have and addictions that you have in this small room right now, there are the people with those same struggles and same addictions. And all it takes sometimes is for one person to not know the rules and break the dam. And what I've found in ministry is, is the moment someone on stage will say they have depression, this weird key is unlocked in people where now all of a sudden people are willing to talk and open up and, and get help. Or the moment someone on stage expresses a question or a doubt or in a small group or in whatever community Christians are in, moment there's some vulnerability there. It's a potential for this group to thrive, to grow, to be built. As a church, we can, we can continue. I think we do it well, but we can continue to push towards being the type of community that reflects truly God's image that shows the world what he's like. And that enables us to play more of a faithful part in the world that he has created and a world that he has given to us.